Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Jesus, we, we confess that there are so many voices in our society, in our own heart, that seek to close us off from the voice of love. Your message is simple and it's obvious and it strikes us numb for how good it is. It's so good and it's so simple, we can't even fully receive it. That the God of the universe has not abandoned us but is for us and loves us, has chosen us. And so over this next bit of time, Lord, I just ask that for each person in this room, no matter where they are in their own spiritual journey, no matter what they may think or not think about you, that there would be a humility of spirit and a willingness uh, to be vulnerable, to open up, and to perhaps hear what you want to say. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you're joining us for the first time, we just kicked off a new series that we're titling Sacraments. Uh, Sacraments is a Catholic concept, uh, which basically, at its simplest, it gets at the idea that God, uh, the the source of all life, uh, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, wants to speak to us, go figure, wants to speak to his creation, wants to communicate to us. And uh, basically we're making the, the contention that all sorts of things and people and institutions can be sacraments, can be conduits by which God speaks to us, provided that they share a logic. And the logic is simple and the logic is present throughout all of the biblical stories. It is simply this, that if God is speaking to you, you're gonna die in some capacity, sorry. (laughs) You're gonna die. It's going to be a death. It's gonna be a death of some amount of power, of some amount of control, a death of, of some amount of your nature that you don't even realize is there. It's going to leave you wounded. However, for those who receive the word of life, there's resurrection on the other side of that. Today, we're gonna talk about the sacrament of baptism. However, I made it more provocative. I just said the waters because the waters sounded more mystical and mysterious. We're talking about the sacrament of the waters. And we're gonna read for our text today, Acts 8. Acts 8. Let's pull out your Bibles. If not, we're gonna put it up here on the screen. This is the, 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 Acts tells the story of the first church. After Jesus has done his thing, um, he's died, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he's poured out his spirit onto the first disciples. Acts is telling this story. And this is early on in the story. So Acts chapter eight, verse 26 through 39. This is what we read. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. 
the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news of Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why should I not be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, at first glance, this story does not seem to focus on the waters, which we're talking about. The waters only appear at the very end of the story. And clearly, as I'm going to point out today, the waters signify a point of transfer between two worlds, between two masters, in the same way that there are two characters in this story. Three, if you include the Spirit of God, yes, but mainly two, Philip and the eunuch. In the same way, I'm going to be a little bold here, and I never like drawing hard and fast lines in the sand because life is complex and we don't know precisely where everyone is. But in the same way that I want to say there are only two types of people in this room today. No matter where you are, and there are different degrees where you could be, but there are only two types of people, those who have passed through the waters and those who have not. Today's sacrament, friends, is more mystical than others. And so I'm afraid uh, there's not a lot of work I can do other than simply point to the waters themselves. And to say and to make the point that you don't go to the waters. You're led there. You look up and you say, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? The waters take on their nature as a divine portal of death and resurrection at the end of a very long road and not one step before it. Baptism is not our work. It's not my work. It's not your work. Baptism is God's work alone. You don't choose it. God leads you to it. And unfortunately, all you can do is reject it. So before we begin the story, I want to I ask you to locate yourself. Locate yourself. Which side of the waters are you on? And you'll know this based on, as you focus your attention on them, what fills your soul? Are you afraid as you look at the waters? Are you nervous? Are you apprehensive? Or do you want to jump in and swim? That will determine where you are. What do you feel when you look at the waters? So a couple things as we read this story that stand out. Number one, the question of the waters is asked in the desert. The question of the waters is asked in the desert. There's two ways we know this. Verse 26, we're told, uh, uh, the spirit says to Philip, go down to the road. 
the desert road. Like he makes it very specific for us. Uh, in the Greek, alte estin eremos, that is the desert. So Philip is at a desert road. He's in the middle of a desert. We also know this because we're told that the Ethiopian eunuch has come up to Jerusalem to worship. So obviously he's worshiping Yahweh in some sense and he's returning, we're told in verse 27 and 28, he's returning on the road toward Gaza. So they're in a desert road. And it's not just the setting of the desert, but it's also a metaphorical desert going on as well. And I think that's important. If you were here last week, we talked about pain and why it is that God speaks to our pain. We're gonna turn, return to that a bit. If you weren't here, you can find all that on the podcast. But we pointed out that it seems like God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks in our conscious, but shouts in our pains. It seems like suffering awakens us to our fundamental reality in a way that other things can't, that we are creatures who are fragile and who are going to die. And that, that doesn't sit well. Pain forces upon us this question of our mortality and our weakness in a way that, that other places can't. The desert dries us up. Pain sobers us and strips us bare of all the good and bad things that fill our hearts and leave no room for God to speak to us. That's why I think it was on the way home for the eunuch that God orchestrated this. Not on the way up to Jerusalem, because while he's traveling up to Jerusalem, he's still kind of excited. He has hopes. He has anticipation about what's gonna happen. It's not until he's in Jerusalem and he recognizes that something still was left unsatisfied and he's going home wondering, why am I unsatisfied? What's going on? Maybe you have a similar story. Maybe it's not that you hear God when you're coming to New York full of hopes and dreams of what might be, what could be. It's once you're broken here and then you're left dry and deserted and wondering, well, what now? Or it doesn't have to be New York. It could be any sort of job or relationship, what have you. What are the things that you're, you're hoping for and then you get it and you realize, ah, oh, this it's not here. I'm still dry. I still have a question. That's the part of, of the pain in the desert that is starting to strip us bare and dry us up and leave us vulnerable and available for God to speak. And just so you know, this has always been God's methods, always. And a really beautiful, beautiful and heartbreaking um, prophet called Hosea. Uh, God tells the prophet Hosea to go marry a prostitute and stay faithful to her, even though she won't. And the reason why he does it, it's a symbolic act to represent um, God's relationship with Israel and how God is always faithful to Israel, but Israel continues to, to go away. God's relationship with us as the church how Jesus is continuously faithful to us and we continue to be unfaithful to him and God's relationship to you, wherever you are, that God will always be steadfastly faithful to you no matter what you may think about him. But in this really beautiful passage, this is what we read in Hosea. And when you see the feminine character, think us, think church, think Israel. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. But therefore I, I meaning God, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, 
but not find them because she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Ahor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. This is the cosmic story. This is your story and my story. God creates a beautiful world, perfectly united with himself, with love. But through decisions, through, through circumstances, we have cut ourselves off. We've gone astray. And we've spent the, the entire history of civilization is one story after another of the ways we go after other lovers. We go after other things thinking this will satisfy. This will, will finally make uh, the pain go away. Or if we're the holders of these good things, we learn how to monetize them and we learn how to extract from them and we learn how to turn them into tremendous power. And God is saying, you, we've all forgotten the giver of the good things. Work, success, marriage, family, fun, experiences, stimulation, a desire to, to see justice in the world, a desire to numb our pain. All of these are different ways that we are chasing after our lovers, but we never catch them, do we? We never catch them. We go after these things. Once we get this job, once I get this relationship, once this life experience happens, then I'll be satisfied. And it never happens, ever. We drink water and we thirst again. But what does God say? Because we're not listening. We're going on our own path. He says, I will block her in with thorn bushes. I will wall her in. I can't violate her free will, can't violate our free will, but I can direct the path and lead her into the desert where she's dried up where she can't get to her lovers anymore. And now she's left with the fundamental question through pain, says God, I will starve you and reveal to you how the water you've gone after has only left you more thirsty. And in that, when there's nothing to fill it, there's nothing to grab onto and distract yourself, you'll finally ask the fundamental question, which is this, why is there thirst at all? Why do I thirst? See, when we stop drinking from these limited streams, we get very honest in the desert about this insatiable thirst within us. Why is it there? Unless there is a source of water that quenches it. As we said last week, if I find within myself a thirst which nothing in this world can quench, I must logically conclude that water that quenches this thirst is from another world. I kind of paraphrase that a bit. It must be. <clears throat> that we thirst at all is proof that there is something to satisfy it. And, and think about this, do a little thought experiment with me. Imagine that in this universe, there is no creator. There is no source of light. And therefore, all that is has emerged from random, chaotic, 
meaningless encounters and forces. And all there is is darkness. If that were the case, we would have never discovered that it was darkness. Why? Because the only way we can understand what darkness is, is if we have a concept of what light is. That we know there's light allows us to recognize that there's such a thing called darkness. If the universe were only dark, the creatures would have never discovered it. Or perhaps this, uh, this is a little more philosophical, so if maybe this isn't your, your cup of tea, don't worry about it, just forget about it. But for some people, it might speak to them. David Bentley Hart writes this, he goes, an essential mystery lies at the very heart of rational life. In all experience, there is a movement of the self beyond the self, an ecstasy, a standing forth of the mind directed toward an end that resides nowhere within physical nature as a closed system of causes and effects. He's saying we have a thirst which nothing seemingly in this world is able to fully satisfy, right? All rational experience and all knowledge is a kind of rapture prompted by a longing that cannot be exhausted by any finite object. He's totally a philosopher. I'm sorry if it's totally making your eyes glaze. But the question is, what then do we really seek in seeking to know the world? What lures us on into reality? Is it only an illusion? This idea that there is a well that quenches our thirst, is that only an illusion that keeps driving us forward to drink from different wells over or the same wells over and over and over again, hoping we'll get a different result? Is that an illusion? Or is it something that opens the world to us precisely because it is a genuine dimension of reality in which the mind and the world participate together. When we discover the thirst that nothing in the world can satisfy, we finally are free to ask the question, why do I keep thirsting? Why is there a thirst at all? Unless there is a source that satisfies this thirst. Where did it come from? Or as Hart would say, what do I really seek in seeking to know the world? What has been luring me on into this reality? And maybe, just maybe, it is the one who you don't believe in, the one who is part of reality, even as he is beyond it. And in the space of that question, perhaps we might find an answer. In the desert, with nothing to distract us, all we become aware of is the thirst itself. What is it? Why is it here? Or in the biblical language, God says, I will lead her into the desert and I will speak tenderly to her. What is the eunuch's desert in this story? What is the eunuch's question? Well, we find that in, in the scripture he's reading. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he reads, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. And his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. That comes from Isaiah 53. It's a very mysterious passage, uh, paraphrased or subtitled, The Suffering Servant. It tells of God's appointing of a representative of his people Israel, 
who through his suffering will, will save all of Israel. Now, of course, some of us, we, we immediately want to rush to who this represents, but don't for a second and recognize that this eunuch is a eunuch. This is a eunuch. And historically, if you don't know uh, what a eunuch is, um, eunuchs are, are primarily males who serve in uh, the monarchy of various nations who were generally dismembered at a very young age um, to serve the king or the queen. Um, and they are dismembered as a way to ensure that there are no illegitimate children. Um, so it's to preserve the bloodline. So this is a eunuch who probably um, was dismembered involuntarily at a very young age and, and cannot have children, cannot leave a legacy. And though there is an honor in serving the nation, there is a death in that since the nation has now become his legacy. And in that vein, read this passage again. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb, silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the word, the Greek word for life there is zoe and not bios. Bios means like biological life. Zoe means a spiritual life. So he's saying, I cannot have children. I will leave no legacy. My life was taken from the earth. Now tell me, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Is he talking about me? See, in the desert, we're desperate enough to ask the deepest question of our heart. Am I really worthy of love? Like I know some people say, but no, no, no. If you saw everything in me, like everything, would you still choose me? Am I beautiful or am I ugly? Is it good that I exist? Why do I exist? In the desert, these questions finally come to the surface. We're not drinking from limited streams. We ask the deepest stuff. And lucky for us, in the eunuch's thirst, he has asked the question of the waters. And God has orchestrated the events. Philip was listening because Philip was on the desert road. And this is an important point. It's a bit of an aside, but it's important. I said that there are two people in the room and it determines on which side of the waters you're standing. But on one side of the waters, there are the questions, the, the, the question of the desert. And on the other side where Philip is, I want you to know there are not the answers, just FYI. It's not that Philip has all the answers to all of his questions. What he has now is obedience. And the reason why is because he's satisfied. The questions he had before he entered the waters, when he came out, he realized those aren't the best questions anymore. I, I don't need their answers like I used to. Now, even though I don't have all of the answers, I'm satisfied and I'm listening and I'm obedient. 
Philip was told to go to the desert road at noon. That was one of the details we passed over. Told to go at noon. That's a very dangerous time to go to the desert road. But he goes because he's listening. He didn't ask why. He went because Philip, Philip has passed through the waters. He is satisfied and able to obey. He's on the desert road and look, a royal carriage. Go up to it. Listen. Oh, the prophet Isaiah. Well, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? Tell me, who is the prophet speaking about, himself or someone else? And beginning with that very passage, he told him the good news of Jesus. That's the second thing. If the question of the waters is asked in the desert, then the second thing we realize is that Jesus is on the banks of the waters. And that's the good news, friends. Pain has brought to us, to the forefront, the question, why are we to die? Why does life hurt so bad? What is true? What is the prophet speaking about? Why was I made a eunuch without my consent? Why was my life taken away from me? Why did my mom die? Why was I abused like that as a kid? Why did I harm that person so terribly? Why do I feel so alone? The desert brings those questions up. And everyone attempts an answer to it. Everyone. And we know that because those are the lovers that we all chase after. But in the desert, we realize that those answers aren't it. They're still lacking. They might be some good stuff in them, but they're not fully it. And God has orchestrated things. And we recognize as we're led there that Jesus is on the banks of the waters. And he gives his answer. And he says, I can't tell you all of it yet. You wouldn't fully understand. You wouldn't grasp it. But here's what you need to know. Somewhere along the road, you chose this. It was all chosen. But I'm with you. I have crossed the waters and I have come to join you. God is with you in that question. You're not alone in that deep thirst. And you know this because you see Jesus. You know this because I'm here and I've brought the message of God that you're worth enough to come and die for. As we talked about last week, there is one fundamental state of the human condition that God had not experienced. He created this vast cosmos and all the creatures in, and there's through our rebellion, through our mutiny, there was one fundamental state that God had not experienced, and that is separation from God. When we pulled ourselves away from the life source, therefore we began the process of withering and dying and decaying. And that is what God had not experienced. But on the cross, on the cross, Jesus is up there, and he who did not know separation from God now is experiencing separation from God, which leads to his death. Therefore, there is now no state of being that you can exist in, even in godless existence unto death, where God isn't also there with you. We're told in the prophets that when the Messiah comes, his name will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That is the answer that we're given to the pain, to the pain of the desert question. God is with us in it. And that's enough right now. That's enough right now.
The eunuch is saying, I am lonely. I will have no legacy. I had no choice in my station. Like a lamb that did not open its mouth, I was led to the slaughter and my life was taken from me. And Philip says, let me tell you about Jesus. He too was lonely. He too had no choice in his station. Where in fact, he did have one choice and he chose to give up his glory and to come to be with us. And he too was led like a lamb, the sacrificial lamb to the slaughter. You're not alone in your life. He knows the pain you're experiencing because he is with you in it. And friends, it doesn't matter how deep the pain you think is. He's with you in it. God has experienced separation from God so that he can be with you. Our stories find their truest form in Jesus' story because he's on the bank of the waters. People ask, why does it have to be Jesus? Why Jesus? Because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. If it wasn't Jesus, we wouldn't know that God loves us. We wouldn't know who God is. But in the historical story of Jesus of Nazareth, we see a life so utterly compelling and so utterly confounding. It just confuses us, it messes us up, but we're drawn to it. We're drawn to it. And you see this throughout the world. There's always been this drawing to it. Even various religions make a count of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the visible image of this invisible God named love. Jesus is how we know that God is love and that God loves us because he's here in the flesh, in Israel, telling us this, living that out, dying on a cross and being resurrected. In his flesh, we know who God is. Jesus is how we know there are living waters, that there is a well that doesn't run dry, (laughs) that when we drink from it, we don't get all the answers to our questions, but some of those questions fade in their importance and we're satisfied. Why these questions at all? Is he only an illusion? Or is he something that opens the world to us precisely because he is a genuine dimension of reality in which the mind, God, and the world, us, participate together? In your heart, wherever you are, as you consider Jesus on the banks of the waters, why are we so drawn to him? Which then, when we realize that, the question Uh, of the waters is asked in the desert. And we realize that Jesus is on the banks of the waters. Then we realize why we've been so afraid looking at them. It's because the waters kill us. The waters signify your death. On the other side is God. There he is. There is rest. There is home and the restored relationship with our father. But we cannot get across because we are separated from God. There's nothing we can do to get across the waters. But Jesus is on our side of the bank. Jesus is God in the flesh who has come to our side of the bank. He has bridged the chasm right in the place that has separated us from God, that has separated the mind 
from the world, which is why you can't go to the waters. You're only led there. You're led there by the one you don't believe in and don't see, but you feel the absence of that one. And if we're deeply honest in the desert spaces, we know we do. We, we feel the absence of that one, even though we don't believe in that one. And then as we're being led, as things are being orchestrated, as we're meeting people in our jobs and don't even recognize what's going on, we perhaps can turn and look and maybe see a hidden hand that's drawing us into the desert, that's drawing us to the waters. And look, there's Jesus. And he's waiting and he's saying, would you like to come across with me? I can take you across, but you're gonna have to let me do it. One of the first earliest church fathers, a man named Athanasius, he wrote, God became like us that we might become like God. God became like us. That is to say, he became separated from God. He joined us on our side of the waters that through that participation, through that relationship, he might lead us back across to be with our home and our rest. The waters is the point of transfer between two worlds. And this is made even more concrete in the story of the Exodus. And we, we did a series on it last year. If you don't know it, brief, brief synopsis. So the people of Israel, they awake. They awake in captivity in Egypt. Um, God sends a mediator named Moses, a leader. And he says to Moses, go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and tell him to let my people go that they may come and worship me. Now here's the interesting thing about that phrase. When there's, there's a word, there's a Hebrew word called avad. And avad can mean either servant or slave or something like that. Someone who is contingent on a master, dependent on someone. So when you read about the book of Exodus, about Israel in captivity, they're constantly called avads. They're described as being um, harsh avad nature under Egypt. However, when God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they may worship me, the word for worship in a couple instances is avad. So what is he saying? He's saying that you and I don't lose our fundamental nature as contingent creatures. That you and I are going to serve something. And even if we think, and this is the deception of our own Western society, we think we're in control, but really we are held captive by all the lovers we're chasing after, aren't we? We think we're in control of our lives, but the way we live, the, the anxiety with which we live, the depression and the loneliness and, and all these things that it, it demonstrates that in fact, we're chasing after lovers and we're not reaching them, which means, are we really free? Or are we simply avods? Are we servants of forces outside of ourselves? And the waters becomes the point of transfer so that when Pharaoh finally lets the people of Israel go, if you know the story or if you've seen the 10 commandments with um, Char Jeffrey Charlton, I don't know, one of the names, um, Nathan's gonna get mad at me later, I can tell. Uh, but if you've seen the Ten Commandments, when they cross the Red Sea, the waters split. Moses allows the waters to split. 
Israel crosses and what happens? Egypt is drowned in the waters. They are no longer avods to Egypt. They are now avods to Yahweh. And being a servant of Yahweh, because all we can be as dependent creatures is a servant of something, looks more like being a son and a daughter of love. We find a true sense of freedom. See, that's, that's what I want to point out. That's the deception on our side of the waters. That's the deception. We think we're in control of ourselves, but really we are in captivity to forces greater than we realize. And that becomes apparent in the desert because in the desert, when we stop filling ourselves, we ask, why do I keep thirsting? Why won't it go away? What is this thirst? Clearly, I can't sustain myself. And there's Jesus and he says, you're not supposed to. You can come back and be free. It's all your choice, but you got to let me take you across. I became like you, that you might join me in my father's house. And it starts right now. It doesn't fully end right now, but it starts right now, which means you have to give up all power or seeming power to enter that relationship, to enter these waters. And confessing in those waters that the life we lived before our relationship with Jesus, which was in control of ourselves, which was trying to quench our thirst at our own pools, which was existence without God that has led and will lead to death. We don't wanna do that anymore. Tired of it. I'm allowing Jesus to take me. But again, that's the me separated from God into the waters and to kill that me, which is why Karl Barth writes, baptism is not about cleansing the old man, Baptism is about drowning him. Baptism is nothing more than grace clutching you by the throat, which is a very visceral image. And God's saying, you have passed through the waters, you have transferred control, you are mine. And now what can separate you from the love of God found in Christ Jesus? Nothing and no one, neither height nor depth, angel nor demons. There is nothing and all of the vast cosmos that can separate you from the love that is found in the visible image of the invisible God, from the love that we see on the cross as someone who lived a life full of love, dying voluntarily and unjustly to join us in the state of existence which God had not known. Now we are not alone. It's so, like, I said, like I prayed earlier, it's so obvious and it's so simple, but it's so hard. <laughs> Because you know what's asked of you. You have to give up power. You have to go into the waters and let him kill you to find that new life. But he says, if you come into the waters and die with me, you'll also live with me. I will lead you across to the place for which your soul was made. You'll find the source of the living water that satisfies. Unfortunately, those are the choices. <laughs> those are your two choices. Remain on this side of the waters in control of your life, but forever thirsty. Give up control. Allow Jesus to take you across, to kill the you you think is alive and to find freedom as you've never tasted it. But how can you trust him, right? You're staring at him. You're scared. Even though it's thirsty, there's still a certain comfort in knowing you're in control of yourself. How can you trust him? Well, I've gone across the waters <laughs> and I see him and I just want to swim. I'd give up control a million times over. 
And I dare say there are other people in this room that would do the exact same. It's all been orchestrated. The pain, the desert, the thirst that won't go away. Philip, Jesus on the banks, that's all been orchestrated. Now the offer is yours. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing and no one. So what do you say? Do you reject his invitation? It's for you. It's free of cost. Or do you allow him to take you into the waters? To kill the you you think is alive. And to discover, perhaps, just maybe, a real you that you never imagined was possible. A freedom that you never thought could be real. Perhaps to discover the source of water that you've been searching for all your life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, says Paul, we will certainly also be united in a resurrection like his. If we have gone with him into the waters, trusting that he knows the way, then we will make it to that distant shore where we thirst no more. Did I go to the waters because I was thirsty? Sort of, but no. I was thirsty because I hadn't gone with Jesus to the waters. Will you pray with me? Lord, you know every heart in this room. I pray right now that they wouldn't shut off their hearts and their minds. They wouldn't tune out. But that they would open their hands and listen to what your spirit might want to say. You know on which side of the bank they stand. And of course, we recognize that there are all sorts of traditions that have done, that have attempted to practice us in different ways. But the question that I want you to be focusing on right now is, what do you feel when you think about the waters? Let that determine on which side you stand. Are you afraid? Do you want to go, but you're so nervous? Do you long to swim? Lord, I, I know that messages like today are tough. Because some of us aren't in the desert. And of course, I don't pray that you take people to the desert, and yet I do. I don't pray for pain, and yet I know that that is where you meet us, where you reveal to us our thirst. And so Jesus, I just pray right now for anyone in this room that feels thirsty and feels tired 
And if you feel in your heart the compelling by God, maybe by one you're not even fully able to name yet, but a compelling to say, follow Jesus into the waters, would you simply say in your heart, yes. Yes, I'll do it. Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing and no one. Do not shut yourself off today if you hear his voice. Do not turn away as you did in the rebellion. The invitation is for you. And Lord, for for those of us on the other side of the waters who have let you take us in and drown us and resurrect us, who see the waters and see life, would you make our ears like Philip's? Because there would be no baptism unless Philip was listening. Would you make our ears and our hearts able to hear you? As it was said long ago, would we wake up every morning, wash our face and remember our baptism? Remember that our lives are not our own and therefore every day that we live, it is not to our own ends and our own aims. It is with open hands listening for you, God, to see how love wants to further inject love and life into this world that is so thirsty. Only you can do it, Jesus, and so we turn our faces to you and we listen to your voice. It's in your name, amen. We're about to respond with a song. And as we do, I wanna invite you again, as Alicia mentioned, we have these new what's next cards. On the second page, there's some possible steps that you can take depending on where you're at. One of them is specifically baptism, but there are also others. And if today you're here and you just felt something push on your heart to take a step, I encourage you to yield to that. Fill it out. And then as we leave um, to go upstairs for brunch, drop it off at the what's next table in the generosity box or in the what's next box. But even in this next time and space, as we sing together as a community, would you listen? Would you make yourself available to what God might want to say? So stand and let's sing together. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.